I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by Claire Wills, a professor of English at Cambridge, whose books include Lovers and Strangers, An Immigrant History of Post-War Britain, and The Best Are Leaving, Emigration and Post-War Irish Culture. She gave the second of this year's LRB Winter Lectures at Conway Hall on the 24th of February, which is what we'll be talking about today. The lecture was a consideration of the stories that get told about abortion in fiction, film, court rulings and clinics. You can watch it on the LRB YouTube channel and read the text in the current issue of the paper. Hello, Claire, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you for having me back. You begin with a quotation from and a discussion of Annie Erno's 1974 novel Les Armoires Vides, The Empty Wardrobes, in which the narrator has an abortion and goes looking in books, in novels especially, for a description of what she's experiencing to help her, as she puts it, get through these dirty moments. But there's nothing. Books are silent on this topic, she says. And then you pose a series of questions. Why should it matter that books have been silent on abortion? And in what way have they been silent? And what is it about realist plots that renders the reality of women's sexual lives invisible? So perhaps we could talk about some of those questions now, mm-hmm. slightly out of order. So first, in what way have books been silent about abortion? Because Les Armes of course, is itself a, a counterexample. Yes, I think... I think Elno's title really refers not so much to wardrobes, in fact, as kitchen cupboards. The novel is obsessed with food and what you put in your belly, whether it's, you know, food or fetuses. There's a translation of the novel by Carol Sanders, which unfortunately I wasn't able to get hold of, but she translates the title as cleaned out, which I think is just really brilliant summing up of the tone and feel of the book. But Elno was writing in the early 70s during the campaign for abortion legislation in France. And her character's problem is that she's been schooled in how to behave by reading novels. But the novels she reads don't tell her about this kind of bodily experience, what what it means to go through having an unwanted pregnancy and having to get an abortion. I mean, abortion does occur in novels, of course, Sartre's The Age of Reason was published in 1945 and it's it's all about a bloke, Mathieu, who needs to find the money for his mistress's abortion in Paris in the late 30s. And I, I don't think it's an accident that Ernaud also sets her novel in the run-up to the death of the fetus, as it were. But rather than, you know, the moral and financial dilemmas of the man involved, she gives us, as she says in Les Armoires Vides, what the 20-year-old girl thinks as she lies on her bed, having returned from the the maker of angels. And I didn't have much space in the lecture to say anything really about Ernaud's engagement with Sartre and de Beauvoir, but I do think that one of the things that's going on in the novel is Ernaud trying to enact what it would really mean to say, following Sartre, that to be is to choose ourselves 
what might that mean when faced with an unwanted pregnancy? What kind of choosing are we really talking about here? And of course, choice choice is the language of the pro-abortion movement is describing itself as pro-choice. So, yeah, and so what does that, yeah. Yes, and she was involved in the, the French pro-abortion movement, choisir, so literally to choose. So she's engaging in that, but I think she's also trying to say, well, you know, how do books, where will I find a reflection of this experience in books? Because, and, and, and she says she doesn't find it because what she is experiencing is a bodily experience, not really a mental one at all. And the books that she goes looking in, I mean, you mentioned Balzac and uh, Sartre as well. And I mean, of course, one thing about these books is that they're written by men. So this women's bodily experience is not something that these great and in inverted commas male novelists had written about. Yeah, I think that's right. But I wouldn't say that it's really about whether they're written by men or by women. In fact, you know, in the lecture and in the piece in the paper, I suggest that there's a problem with literary realism when it comes to representing women's sexual lives because of the way that realism sets up the relationship between private experience and the public. And I remember it was about a year ago when I talked to you about psychiatric institutions and mother and baby homes. I made a pitch for literature and art as a way of framing ordinary experience or putting it under torsion so that viewers and readers were able to see more clearly the mechanisms of power which, which are orchestrating social and personal experience. And I was talking in that case of being able to not see what's in front of our very eyes with the carceral institutions of mother and baby homes. But the opposite is also true, of course. Literature and art are also institutions that mask the operations of power. And that's Arnaud's insight in Les Armoires Vides. The unwanted pregnancy and the abortion give her an insight into the ways in which private life has been shaped by literature. The very idea of what is private, the very idea of the personal, is a consequence of the novel. I mean, I, I don't mean that the novel manages that all by itself. It's not that powerful. But along with other institutions of social power, prisons, hospitals, schools, and in some countries, the church, literature is also an institution that shapes our access to what we can see and know. So I don't think it's about whether it's written by men or women, really. There's a brilliant book published back in the 1980s, Nancy Armstrong's Desire and Domestic Fiction, where she primarily looks at novels by women, in fact. And she argues that the domestic novel, and in particular the marriage plot, wasn't just a place where readers, especially women readers, encountered stories of love and desire and personal growth, that they could identify with. But it's where they learn to shape their desires inside the contours of a middle-class world that requires them to identify with those values. Women learn a, a particular emotionally articulate version of subjectivity from fiction. And it seems to me that Arnaud in, is saying in Les Armoires Vides and later in her memoirs, that we have to break that mould in order to be able to express other kinds of desire. She means, I think, forms of physical compulsion, including sex, but also other kinds of hunger that don't fit the narrow definition of private, subjective, thoughtful reflection. Yeah, and you, you, as you say in the lecture, that one of the things in that Denise, the, the 
character in the novel, that this distinction between private and public doesn't exist in her in her home life? No. So she she's growing up. She she gives a much bleaker portrait of her childhood than she does in the novel than she does in later memoirs, and and she's. Um, she, she grows up inside, her, her parents run a bar and there's sort of no distinction between the, the kind of drunk men in the village who spend their time inside the bar and, and the private life of the family. So, so it is a, it's, a, it's a story about um, a social milieu that doesn't fit the kind of middle class distinction between um, public and private divisions um, and therefore... I think doesn't fit the way that we we kind of uh, have constructed notions of moral discrimination and uh, subjective feeling depending on that division. Recently, I read a brilliant article by Ros Ballister about 18th century fiction by women, where she gives these really amazing examples of early early fiction written by women that's constructed as a series of short and very varied plots. Um, the more varied, the better, because part of the job of the fiction, this is early 18th century fiction, was to show women what they should be feeling in different circumstances. So the fiction itself is offering a kind of course or a kind of set of lessons in, in moral feeling. So when I started thinking about what abortion stories say about abortion, if you see what I mean, I wanted to start from there and ask you know, if fiction is where women have learned to have appropriate discriminating thoughts about experience, does that narrow what can be said about abortion to questions of moral discrimination rather than, as Ernaud suggests, issues of desire and compulsion or other questions entirely? And some of those other questions are to do with queerness and a rejection of heteronormativity, which is something I also talk about in the lecture and try to think, link to a kind of different way of understanding abortion. And so you already mentioned that, and I wrote Les Envoies shortly before abortion was legalised in France and that she was part of the campaign Choisir. Mm. And, I mean, did the novel help, as it were, with that campaign? I mean, is it, did it manage to change the way that people were able to talk and think about abortion? I'm not sure I... I this is a question that I can answer very well. I, I'm not sufficiently inward, maybe, with the manner in which abortion legislation was brought forward in France in the 70s, except that I do know that the legalisation in the UK in 67 and the US in 73 were catalysts for the movement in France, a, a kind of mass feminist campaign starting in the late 60s, which targeted not only abortion but access to free contraception, divorce by mutual consent, the criminalisation of rape, uh, which wasn't criminalised till, till the late 70s. Um, it, and it was the health minister in Giscard d'Estaing's government, Simone Veil, who brought forward the legislation to decriminalise abortion in France. So I think that's quite important. The arguments in, in France were around health rather than around women's rights. And I guess that Ernaud's decision to write about her own abortion, which she, she begins writing in 73 and the book is published in 74. So that's at the moment in which Roe um, 
row happens in, in the States. Um, that's 10 years after her own abortion. She had her abortion in 63. So I guess Ernaud's decision to write about it, and this is her first novel, remember, was partly a response to the debates that were coming into the public sphere at the time. You can watch interviews with Ernaud on French television um, when the book was published in, in 74, and in them she discusses her activism in Choisir, the, the Right to Choose campaign. But, you know, what is really unusual about the novel is that there isn't really an abortion plot. It's this story about class alienation as much as a story about abortion, I think. So in one way, I find it hard to imagine that the novel would have had much of an impact. And partly, I guess, because it's a novel with a relatively small readership rather than a, a public political campaign or, you know, if you're thinking about... But I suppose it was happening at the same time and, and in a sense, if, I mean, you can read it as a cause or a symptom or as part of the, you know, as that, the movement towards legalisation and it was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she certainly talks about it as as her attempt to take part in 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 a, a form of activism. You mentioned that Ken Loach's movie Up the Junction, based on Nell Dunn's book, did make a difference to public opinion in Britain. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so there's that question that some stories about abortion, to whatever extent, did help with with legalisation. But in a sense, turning that question round, which is something else that you you address, is how did legalisation change the stories that people told. Yeah, just on up the junction, it, it made a difference, I think, for two reasons. One, one was that 10 million people watched it in the Wednesday play, you, you know, just after the nine o'clock watershed on, on national television. But I, I don't think it's just about um, the numbers of people it reached. It's also about the form of realism that that um, Loach used, which is a mix of kind of fictional realism and documentary techniques. So, so that as, as the abortion plot, Rube has an abortion, she's 17, she goes to a family friend and has an abortion, which looks for a while as though it's going to go very badly wrong and then doesn't. Um, but during the scene, you, you get these kind of it's a mix of documentary techniques. You get a kind of voiceover from a doctor, but you also get sort of vox pop from women about the sex they're having, about what they realised they were going to have to do when they got pregnant, um, people they know who've had abortions. And, and so it's, it's, it's both documentary and fiction. And I think that has had a great deal to do with why it was so powerful. But you were asking me about a kind of shift in emphasis before and after legalisation. And I, I think it is true, before legalisation, abor abortion stories focus, focused on the problem of access. You know, how am I going to find the money, find someone who'll do it, keep the pregnancy hidden, where can I travel? These are all storylines that are returning in US abortion stories um, as criminalisation in the various states means that access is now again the issue. Um, but in Britain in the late 60s and in the US and in France in the mid 70s after legalization, abortion stories no longer focused on what you might think of as the drama of access. How am I gonna manage this without getting caught or dying in the process? 
Instead, they turn to questions of moral justification, the moral dilemma posed by abortion. That's where the drama lay. Um, and one of the things I argue in the piece is that one, once women are given the right to decide what they are going to do about an unwanted pregnancy, the story becomes about the decision and how that decision gets justified. Have you got a good enough reason? And that's a kind of storytelling that happens both in the clinic and in fiction and film. In the clinic, you have to be able to give a reason why you want an abortion, even if it's kind of attenuated to almost nothing. Um, and that's because the, the, the 1967 Act didn't actually decriminalise it, right? So it's still a crime, but under certain circumstances, it's allowed. Yes. If you can bring forward a reason related to either fetal abnormality or um, a danger to the mental or physical health of the mother, you can sidestep the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. But abortion is not legal in, in the UK. It is allowed in these circumstances. So in, in a sense, it, it requires storytelling. Whereas in, I mean, you quote the, the line from Up the Junction where the neighbour who's helping with it says to the girl, oh, there's no need to explain that you don't have to tell a story, you don't have to have a story. It's, whereas afterwards, that when it moved, instead of from out of the neighbour's house into the clinic, you then do have to explain. Yeah, you have to have a story. And I think one of the films I talk about in the piece is, is never really, sometimes, always, a, a US film, from, I think it's 2020, um, it does this amazing job of merging a kind of road movie, because it's, it's a a film about problem of access in Pennsylvania. Um, it's a road movie merged with this refusal to explain, to, to offer justification. So the central character in, in the film is this 17-year-old girl from small-town Pennsylvania. And as the film unfolds, we understand more about her personal situation. You know, she's sexually harassed on a daily basis. Um, she, she gets a, a kind of it's clear that she's suffering forms of abuse. But we never see her deliberating about whether or not to have an abortion. She's almost mute throughout the film, in fact. It's a film in which the explanation is the milieu, to use a term that Arnaud uses. It's not about personal or subjective um, moral arbitration. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that clearly is really important. That on the, um, I mean, another story which takes that line that um, Edna Bonhomme wrote about on the LW blog last May. There's a novel by Britt Bennett called The Mothers, published in 2016, which begins with an abortion. But Bennett had said she didn't want the character, who's a 17-year-old African-American girl in Southern California, to be indecisive, that it's not about should she or shouldn't she. She just did. And also that, that the, the abortion is the beginning of the story, and it's not actually a story about abortion. That's how the story begins, but then it goes on to questions of her relationship with her community. And it's interesting that there are these stories coming out of America now which are about the importance of not having to justify the choice. The choice is made, and that's that. Yeah, there, there's a, a really fantastic resource called Abortion on Screen, which is run out of um, someone of the University of California campuses, uh, which tracks the changing... Uh, nature of abortion representation in, in film and TV mainly, but we'll also look at adaptations of fiction, obviously. And um, 
I think I think it is a a, a moving. <laughs> You know the the landscape is is moving. I, I'm afraid I don't know the Bennett story, but I'm really interested in what happens when we think about abortion as a catalyst rather than an ending. Um, in in the piece, I talk about various queer stories by the Canadian writer T. L. Cowan and Celine Sharma's um, portrait of a lady on fire, or you could think of Sally Bowles in Cabaret, um, having her abortion inside the queer milieu. In fact, I was just thinking as I was getting ready to talk to you, right through the middle of the 20th century, pregnancy outside marriage is associated with queerness. You know, if you think of the L-shaped room where the main character ends up living in a boarding house with, with gay men and immigrants, or she, Sheila Delaney's A Taste of Honey, where where the main character sets up a new sort of queer family with the bloke she meets in the shoe shop. Um, but anyway, to get, um, I think what's interesting about these queer stories about abortion is the way they associate abortion with sex and desire. I mean, I know that should should be obvious, but in fact, lots of abortion stories are about social problems rather than sex and desire. And to come back to the, the point about the Bennett story, um, th this uh, abortion as the beginning rather than the end of something, these are all stories in which abortion is associated with a new beginning. Something is enabled by the death of the fetus. But I, I, I do, I think I've got mi mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I really admire the, the, the kind of courage with which, for example, in the Sharma film, the two women get to fall in love over an abortion. On the other hand, what does it mean when abortion becomes a plot device that enables development of character, new possibilities? After all, most abortions aren't accessed by people in this situation. You know, childless white women in relationship difficulties who want to change of their lives. But by women who already have children and can't afford to feed them, who can't afford contraception, whose health outcomes are poor. Um, it's true that an abortion in these circumstances enables something, enables a life to be lived, but it's not the kind of grasping of the direction of one's life we get in these fictional stories which are all kind of predicated on an idea of building and development and and you know i will grasp the direction of my life yeah well there's i mean there's a problem with with the tyranny of plot somehow that if you have telling stories you need a beginning a middle and an end and anything the idea that the plot demands this happens and the idea that i mean there's something kind of into, you know, you're talking about power structures earlier, and the way that the the plot of a of a novel or a story or a film sort of is a kind of power structure or reproduces a kind of power structure that these things have to happen, and and I'm so it's, and it's quite interesting the ways of it. I mean, another when I mean, you're talking about mid-century fiction, and that Sarah Waters' novel, The Night Watch, which is set during the Second World War, and it's told backwards. Well, it begins in 1946 and ends in 1941. So, it, among other things, it's a collection of queer love stories. 
but the way that it moves backwards, one of the things that does is resist, it seems to be resisting this idea of plot demanding one thing happens after another, one thing leads to another, the idea of character development, these ideas that fiction appears to demand and impose on its characters, and it, and it resists that. And, one of the, and there is a, one of the characters pretty much in the middle of the book has an abortion, and it this may just be <laughs> so how squeamish I am, but I was I was reading it in a uh, in a restaurant, and I had to I had to put the book down and go out and sit outside and put my head between my knees on the pavement because it was so um, gory and and upsetting. But the um, and one of the things about that as well is that it seems that the it is very much connected to to sex and to the horrors of heterosexual sex, as if for the the girl the the description of the sex with the with the man. Makes it sound pretty revolting, and then pretty grim, and then this is what it leads to, and and the queerness is a, a route out of that, an escape from that, or an alternative to that. Yes, I mean, I think pregnancy in plots—it's a handy speeding up device. You know, once somebody's pregnant in a story, that you, you've got nine months to sort something out, either to find someone to father this child if you're on your own or to have an, you know, you've got less than nine months if you're going to have an abortion. So so, so um, I use the term quickening in, in, in the piece because I'm interested in the way that um, an unwanted pregnancy in, in particular sets a rocket under a plot um, because you've got, you've got to find a solution. And I, I am interested in, in writers that manage to resist that. And in fact... Ernaud's um, memoir, Happening, resists it in, a, in another way, I think, partly, in, possibly in a similar way to the way you're describing the Sarah Waters, because it's a retrospective. She's thinking back uh, now nearly 40 years or, you know, 30-something years. She writes it in 1999, I think. Um, and, and what she's trying to recover is the bodily experience of being inside that pregnancy, which she experienced as a slowing down, not a speeding up. There's a bizarre moment in the book where she um, she goes on, on holiday to the mountains. She's already about 16 or 17 weeks pregnant and she's found an abortionist, but she delays the date of the abortion in Paris because she's never been to the mountains and she wants to know what they're like. And you get this kind of real sense of this person this being, this body, really, sort of absolutely lost and and not knowing how to act. It's not a story about making um, making decisions as being led so much as being led by your body. Um, I, I, I was thinking as you were talking as well about about soaps and the way that plots. Many fewer people in soap operas have abortions than they should. Uh, if, you, if you're kind of thinking that soap operas are dramas of real life or everyday life. Many more people get murdered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah many more people get murdered. And many more people actually give birth to um, unplanned, unplanned children. Um, and that's because an abortion brings, brings a plot to an end. Um, in in if it, unless it's a queer plot, I suppose that's what we're saying. But you, you know, if I don't watch EastEnders, but as I understand it, twelve-year-old Lily Slater is deciding to have a baby at the moment rather than have an abortion, um, and 
apart from the horror of of that being on national TV, um, I I think the re one of the reasons for that is it'll give them storylines for years, for decades in the future, if that if that child is born rather than 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 not born. Yeah, and so it's, again, it's the you know the demands of plot. You have to you know as this kind of oppressive structure. I mean, that question of the, the time limit, if, because of course, in the Roe v. Wade case, Deborah Friedel wrote about um, in the NLB last year that the woman who was Jane Roe, when she went to them, her first understanding was that this, you know, they'd go to the, take it to the Supreme Court and she'd be able to have a legal abortion. And of course, the timescales of the Supreme Court move much more slowly than the uh, the timescales of of a pregnancy. And so her realisation that actually this wasn't whatever the outcome of the case, it wasn't going to personally help her at all. It's horrible, really. Yes. There, there, there's a, a, a similar case, well, not similar, but uh, in terms of time, I suppose, the, the X case in 1992 in Ireland, a 14-year-old girl who was pregnant by rape and was not allowed to have an abortion. So the case was taken and, in fact, won that people were allowed to travel. People got the right to travel for an abortion. But, of course, it was too late for that individual. But, on the, I mean, on the question of Roe v Wade and its overturning, the Supreme Court justices tell stories as well, don't they? And they're their insistence on the on the ethics which didn't used to come up nearly so much but now the supreme courts you quote the the judgment in which they talk about it's a profound ethical question it's a they keep coming back to this idea and as you argue in the piece that wasn't even by their own you know the history that they choose to tell actually if you look into that more closely it doesn't tell the story they think it does no I find it very hard to talk about the Dobbs ruling with any degree of equanimity, I must say. I read a lot of official documents and reports, and I remember last year I was talking to you about the Irish Mother and Baby Homes Commission report and the appalling attitudes to women and children that were betrayed in a lot of that historical material. But reading the Dobbs ruling with something else, the tone of it is so extraordinary extraordinarily self-satisfied and I think cruel that there's a kind of sneering that infects the majority verdict it's that tone you hear from people who only care about winning the argument not about the consequences I mean you hear it all the time in British politics of course but what that tone says is I've got the power I don't need to persuade you I don't need good arguments or consensus or dialogue or any of those things we once learnt were part of democratic politics. So, so the Dobbs ruling is based on a claim about the nature of the nation's history and traditions, and particularly what was the legal status of abortion when the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. Now, obviously, I am not a legal scholar. And of course, legal historians are at liberty to trace legal history through case law and precedent. That is one version of a historical narrative, albeit a very kind of narrow one. But 
what you would assume they can't do, or you would hope that they can't do, is claim that that narrow legalistic thread speaks for the whole of a nation's history and traditions. It's just such... I, th- I think the reason it makes me so upset is it's such lazy scholarship. Um, to, to the objection, for, ha- for example, that women didn't have legal and equal rights in ni- 1868, the Dobbs history says, well, look at Susan B. Anthony. She was against abortion, so you can't claim that if women had had the vote, it would all have been different. It's the, it's the most sort of reductive form of point scoring. It's like public schoolboys barricade each other in the debating hall. Um, winning the point is what it's about, rather than gaining a, a better understanding of people's lives, either in the past or now. And I know it's naive of me to have expected or wished for something else. But, you know, I think people deserved something better. Yeah, well, I mean, that word debate, which is what people always... I mean, it's kind of as it were, the last refuge of a scoundrel is saying, well, why, well, you know, well, we just want to debate this, which is a sort of a classic right-wing bigoted, you know, you justify your expression of your imposing of your power over other people or your ability to damage them as, oh, well, you know, we, we just want to have a debate. And you see it over in, in trans rights and racial justice and climate change. And, yeah. I think anyone who says they just want want a debate is immediately suspect, actually. It says, <laughs> um, because also they don't. They want to impose... I mean, it was clear from you know, the, the blocking of, of Obama's nominations to the court, Trump's packing of the court with right-wing judges, that the, this was always the plan. And actually, you know, what passes for argument put forward in the in the judgment is, is it neither here nor there. They were... This, this was going to be the decision. And, they're, you know, it's fiat dressed up as... As argument, I mean, which you could say from, you know, perhaps they could turn around and say, well, you know, that would also be true of the other side of Roe v. Wade or of, you know, of a left-wing progressive legal ruling. It's just people are going with what what they believe and imposing their beliefs on others. But but if that is true, I would say that you know Roe was right and Dobbs was wrong, and, <laughs> and there we are. But you know, I don't know. Well, Dobbs is saying, well, we're not really saying anything at all about abortion. We're just saying that it should go back to the states to decide. It is a very, very hard moment for women in the United States at the moment, particularly in certain states and in Poland, increasingly in Italy and other places. But the picture as a whole is very varied. In France, they're bringing in a constitutional right to abortion in order to fend off any moves by the religious right that they they may be thinking of making in the future. In Spain, the requirement for parental consent has recently been ditched. Again, you think of Ireland in 2018, the repeal the eighth campaign was won by over two thirds of the vote and so got rid of the constitutional ban on abortion that was brought in in, in 1983. If there were a referendum in the United States, they would go quite the other way. So, yeah, yeah, the the the, um, the religious right do not have the numbers. They don't have popular support. Most people in the US and in Europe believe that people should have the right to abort an unwanted pregnancy up to a certain limit limit. And I think it isn't clear that that the right is going to win in in the end. I mean, let's think about the midterms. In in 
1993, although she was in favour of abortion rights, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did face some hurdles in getting nominated for the Supreme Court because she was explicit about the fact that she didn't agree with the way that Roe had been decided and she thought it was the wrong time to bring in a Supreme Court judgment. She, she, she said, you know, the states were liberalising their abortion restrictions anyway and time should be allowed to take its course, otherwise there was going to be a massive backlash and, you know, you, you can kind of see what she might have meant. Mm -hmm. But I think you can look at it the other way around. Abortion rights were successfully harnessed in the midterms last November. States like Kentucky have moved to protect them. And I'm, I'm kind of persuaded by the argument that that is partly because for 50 years, people have felt that that right exists, that they're not willing to give it up, even if it has been slowly stripped away by things like the Hyde Amendment or if it's been made incredibly hard to access in many states. The right not to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term has kind of become embedded in the way people think about what it means to live in a modern democracy. So when Amy Comey Barrett says, well, people could just be required to go 15 or 16 weeks longer and relinquish their babies at birth, effectively recommending the incarceration of a woman inside her pregnancy, I, th I think people think, you've got to be joking. I'm not voting for that. So... So I think it isn't all going in one direction. Moving back to the question of, of plots, I suppose, and stories, that you, you also discuss, as well as books and stories and movies, um, paintings, um, and in one case a painting in a movie. And, of course, paintings don't usually have a plot, though they can tell a kind of story. And you, you talk about Puerto Rico's pastels that she made after the referendum abortion in Portugal failed in 1998. So this question of, of plots and time and beginnings and ends, that, that paintings offer a way out of that in some ways, don't they? I, I think that the Rego paintings are, are really extraordinary. You can feel the anger with which they were executed. I mean, I, I don't imagine that Rego told herself as she furiously worked on them, these images are a reply to the images of disembodied fetuses. But for me, that is one way that they work, insisting on the real as opposed to kind of mystical and eternal versions of what, what might be considered life. I mean, the, the Rego paintings force us to think about the women involved, what their bodies are going through, although they aren't invested in a kind of photographic realism. The, the paintings of strange, isolated interiors. They're absent of stuff, including blood and fetuses. You know, this is not a Sarah Waters novel. Um, and I think Rego's decision to present rather than narrate abortion is a really powerful one. And, and that something is similar is happening in, in the Celine Sharma film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where there's an abortion and then there's, it's, it's kind of repeated in, in being painted. And I think Sharma is saying, actually, one of the characters says it explicitly in the film. She says, look, look at what is in front of you. And I think Sharma is right. She's saying we must not look away. It's, it's not 
just the right to choose that's needed. It's, it's reproductive justice as a whole. The right to have a child if you want to. The right to decent maternal and child health care. In Erno's memoir, which you, you quote from, she writes that when a new law abolishing discrimination is passed, former victims tend to remain silent on the grounds that now it's all over. So what went on is surrounded by the same veil of secrecy as before. And so I wondered that what happens when, as in much of the United States now, new laws are passed that recriminalise abortion. What does that do to the veil of secrecy? Well, I suppose what Erno is saying there is that silence and secrecy attend unwanted pregnancies, whether they're legal or not. And I think it's worth worth thinking about that, that there's a way in which that is really true, despite all the efforts to publicise abortion stories. In the lecture I gave a couple of weeks ago, I quoted a fragment of Viv Gornick's memoir, where she recounts a conversation with her mother about their respective abortions. Her mother had had three abortions in the 1930s, And Gornick had had one in the 1960s, but they'd never spoken to each other about them. And I I quoted that. And a few days after the lecture, I got an email from a friend who said she had been really moved by that passage. And she had gone and spoken to her own mother about her abortion. And for the first time, asked her mother about her mother's abortion, since she knew she too had had an abortion in her youth. And I, in turn, felt very moved by that. I mean, these were women in their 60s and their 90s who had never talked about their abortions before to each other. And in fact, since I've been thinking about this topic, lots of people have told me about their abortions. What does that mean, I suppose? Perhaps that even though people don't... I don't think any of these women have felt shame that they've had an abortion but they do feel a kind of constraint around having had one. Um, And that there, you know, there's still a need and a desire to get out from under that constraint. And I suppose what I was trying to think about in the lecture was what are the contours of that constraint? And I think it has to do with the way that abortion breaks a kind of code of moral discrimination, moral feeling. Women who have abortions aren't quite properly or quite wholesomely still women unless they can prove that they've kind of morally debated and discriminated about it enough to still count as as these kind of um, subject, deep subjective thinkers. So people stay silent about it, even though one in three women will have an abortion in their lifetime. That's according to a 2017 Oxford University study. Uh, It seems a little high to me. It may be one in four. But still, you know, a very, very large proportion of women will, will have abortions. And they don't feel comfortable talking about it. I don't know if you heard the eight year old senator from Florida, Frederica Wilson, speaking in the Florida House of Representatives. I mean, I obviously didn't hear it at the time, but I I watched it afterwards um, about her own experience in 1968 of having to carry a dead seven-month fetus for two months until she gave birth naturally to a dead and decomposing fetus uh, at severe risk to her own life because the law didn't allow 
the pregnancy to be induced. Um, so this is, I think, last November or December, and uh, Wilson got up to speak against um, a, a law that was being brought in called something like the Born Alive Survivors Act. Um, it's slightly unclear to me what this act was supposed to do, but it was supposed to protect doctors who uh, attempted to save the life of an incompletely aborted born-alive fetus or something like that. Anyway, a, a completely unnecessary law. And, and, and Wilson stood up in con Congress and said she'd never spoken about this very personal and private experience for, for more than 50 years, but she was speaking about it now because of her fears over maternal mortality rates amongst black and Hispanic women. Uh, I think Florida has the worst maternal mortality amongst black and Hispanic women in, in the country. And, and she said, we cannot put childbearing women at risk because of a group of ludicrous, hateful, majority male Congress who have never experienced pregnancy or childbirth, but take pride in monitoring women's vaginas. How dare you, she said. And, you know, she's right. How dare they? How dare they? Claire Wills, thank you very much. Thank you. You can watch Claire Wills' lecture on our YouTube channel or read us in the current issue of the LRB, along with John Lanchester on the history of microchips and Nicholas Spice on conductor's music. If you have any thoughts about this podcast or any other that you'd like to share, you can email us at podcasts, with an S, at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.